Hi, everybody. This is our sixth podcast from the Kingsman. Last time we covered Stranger Things. Yes, I, I, I think I attempted it. it no, it was pretty good. Was it? Halloween okay. and all that. Yeah, see, I thought it yeah. was a good connection. Today, we have Dr. Stephen Felix Yeager with us. He's our first and best guest that we, we brought in. He is a, a, an expert on Pentecostal aesthetics. Um, got a PhD, MFA. He's uh, working at Life Pacific University, and we're so happy to have him here um, to help us learn about Christian faith and the arts. Thanks for um, having me. Glad to be with you guys. Uh, uh, excited to Kingsman. This is actually my first podcast, so that's pretty cool. I am a, uh, uh, a chair of Worship Arts and Media at Life Pacific College in San Dimas, California, and, uh, and I'm a visual artist and a musician. And, uh, but my area of expertise is, um, is, is Pentecostal aesthetics, um, did an MFA and a PhD. So, um, so I'm really happy to just, you know, come in here and talk to you guys about art, God, and all that good stuff. Yeah. Very privileged to have you here. Yeah. And, um, we, we definitely need, we definitely need expert, uh, opinions and advice because we're just kind of doing this. Yeah. Extremely, extremely. So, um, but I think. Okay. I think <laughs> from what it sounds like, we all we all have the same kind of interests and in whatever medium of art, you know. For me, it started with comic books, Joey uh, film. Mm. But uh, I guess let's just begin just asking why art, you know? what? Why is it so important to have put attention, as a Christian, to put mm. attention and focus on what we call art? And, uh, cultivated through human culture if you will yeah yeah um i think um in recent years a lot of uh people have been studying and writing a lot more about um the role of aesthetics in our formation as human beings which i think is really kind of crucial and kind of hits at it if we look at ourselves as holistic beings rather than just kind of like these uh you know brains and bats kind of old cartesian model then um, we know that we're embodied, that, we're, that we take things in through our senses. And then each of these things that we take in through our senses is kind of, um, you know, there's, there's an aesthetic quality to it. There's a way to kind of like um, appreciate and understand what it is that we experience to its fullest. And so I think, um, I think that's, uh, I think it, what, what being able to look at our holism does is engages the full humanity we have. And art highlights the aesthetic experience. And so what it does, I think, is, is if, if you go into the arts, I think it actually enriches your entire life. I think you, you start seeing the world more vividly and more beautifully. You start hearing things and you start um, just comprehending uh, just everything. And your whole life, I think, is enriched by it. I think um, you start seeing forms. You start um, hearing structures and seeing how things are made up and, and, and how things are beautiful and why and when things speak really deeply and speak to your gut level as opposed to just to your brain. And so, um, so yeah, I think, um, it speaks to our holism, but also, um, you know, it just makes us better people. So if Christians can kind of get a handle on, um, on aesthetic appreciation, art, um, just it, this kind of engagements, I think, um, we could have a lot more of an effective ministry or an effective um, way of, uh, engaging the world or even telling people about Christ. When you were talking, you, you made me think about <clears throat> a quote. I don't remember who said it, but they said that art is the incarnation of truth. Mm. And for me, when I see that, I, I think to myself, art 
portrays or should portray something true about reality. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it can be fan- fantasy or mystery or, you know, like there, there's certain genres. But mm-hmm. good art, at least, will point us to something true about ourselves as, as human beings. Absolutely. Um, I, I categorized it. Um, so, like, Thomas Aquinas had this kind of these, these three main transcendentals um, that just kind of get repeated a lot in philosophy of just truth, beauty, and goodness. And, um, and I think a good way to think about it is that they all kind of deal with the same thing. They all deal with rightness, but they deal with rightness in a different way. So like uh, uh, truth deals with rightness, you know, epistemologically, like knowing what's right, um, understanding what's right. Whereas uh, goodness deals with rightness morally. And so, um, and then uh, uh, beauty, I think, is rightness um, aesthetically. And so I think, you know, it, it kind of like is, speaks to that in, in that way. And, and I know that like the way cultures and stuff would define rightness can vary. But I think, I think um, when it's all said and done, that there's just like, like you're saying, a truth or like just something that is, uh, that is very right, I guess, that, um, that is exposed through these transcendentals. And, and I think art has, a, has an excellent ability to kind of, um, you know, expose this yeah yeah maybe you could you could expound on this more but um art making us better human beings i think that being said as christians we should definitely delve into the subject of art because of that fact you know it's just like um but let me ask you this like in um if you could explain just briefly how does it make us better human beings Mm. well if we think about like kind of this old empirical model of just like we take things in through our senses, you know, uh, touch, taste, uh, sight, smell, you know, like, like just the, the five senses that we have hearing. But if, uh, and we think about art as kind of um, engaging directly to our senses, then like uh, what beautiful or, or like what visual art does is it stimulates our visual sense kind of like to to its best thing it like peaks it or something you know music uh that's 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 wonderful or even if it's like crazy and like you know punk rock and just what the point is it's 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 stretching our sense of hearing in lots of different ways aesthetically and um and so when we appreciate the arts we start appreciating how we even come to know things in much deeper ways and i think that's what makes us better people you know, we, we start understanding the richness of, um, of nature, the, the richness of our relationships with each other, the richness of everything, because we can start seeing how these forms are built up, even visually or, or whatever. Like if you, if you can understand form, then things will, will appear much more beautiful to you because you will have this kind of innate sense of how it is made up, you know? Yeah. So just, I think... Speaking on those lines, um, it, it makes us better. It, 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 in a sense, that it, it, it enriches us, and I think it can make us more sensitive to, you know, the beauty all around us. Right. Yeah. When you said that art makes us better human beings, I couldn't help but think to myself that we shape art, and art shapes us. Like a lot of my worldviews and my values and my desires are shaped by what I see in movies or what right. I read in books or what I hear in music. Uh-huh. And so which takes priority? The art? Does art shape us more or do we shape art? Uh, what are you, Simon and, and, and Stephen, what do you feel about that dynamic? 
it's almost as if it's an interdependent thing, right? Because the source of art, I have to think about it because then there's like the ideas, the inspiration of why you produce the art, but the source of the art, the creator of that art is the artist, right? So, so I think I'm going to say, uh, empirically it's 50, 50. I, because I really don't know, you know, that's a, that's yeah. a good point. Cause, well, um, you know, yeah. it's, uh, uh, I feel that at least it's 50, 50, right. Mm-hmm. It could be more, it could be other, but I just, I really don't know, but I, I, I definitely understand what you're saying. Like there's, um, especially with Christian faith, you know, a lot of how I understand theology and a lot of how I understand doctrine, um, is referenced by movies it's referenced by books it's referenced by um by art you know and so uh so it that in some way shapes me um but in i but i know that the person but i know that art is also shaped by yeah. us right. because we, we as as artists so. right yeah definitely uh on a similar track to what, what i believe about too so um it's kind of interesting so Art is really kind of like a cultural product, because if we think about um, an individual making something, it's not an esoteric thing where that individual is by himself kind of creating something. It, it comes out of a cultural dialogue. It comes out of the linguistic system that the person is in. You know, like they're engaging the things that are in the world. They're engaging this uh, kind of like um, background of ideas and thoughts that shape even their own worldview and and everything like that. Like we're not gonna like if if I'm going to be in my insular state the way it is, I'm not going to engage something that is very particular to something across the world. It's going to be what I've been brought up to, you know, that's kind of nurtured into. And so in that sense, there is this collective, um, I guess, uh, um, voice, you know, like a cultural linguistic system that we're born into that shapes us. And so that art is um is part of that system and so when we become artists we add to the system that will then shape us and others and shape others um others in the future so like so any kind of cultural change it kind of moves incrementally in all sorts of ways and 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 kind of shifts as artists are starting to move the dialogue They, they don't go radically new nobody nobody ever starts with a completely radically new dialogue it, it still has to be rooted from um from where it is from from the from the base level of the cultural dialogue in the first place or else it's just not even going to speak to them you know what i mean um like it's not going to be relevant at all so um so i think uh art shapes us in a sense that all culture shapes us and it's part of that um like uh, uh, the cultural linguistic system that we're born in that's kind of using uh Lindbeck's terms uh like that that is shaping us and so, so yeah, I would say we shape art, but it's not, but it's, it is the collective we, it's not the individual so much. I, I think that's kind of like this lost idea of the solitary romantic artist, you know, like the Beethoven or the, the um, you know, like this, this painter that's kind of like, got this great genius that, uh, that's kind of like, that it just is bursting out of them and, um, and almost like otherworldly, like they come from somewhere else, they're artists. I think that idea in this present age of uh, global pluralism is lost. I think we're starting to understand that, um, that really it is a cultural product that 
our, our work is always part of a context. It's mm -hmm. always part of a deeper dialogue. And so in that sense, that deeper dialogue is still what's shaping us. Mm -hmm. Well, add a little bit, but not, we're not going to be that romantic hero. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm speaking to the choir here because both of you appreciate art, but you know, there's a lot of people in the world who think that art is a, a soft thing. It's not as hard and useful and practical and doesn't have utility like business or economics mm. or something. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? Inevitably, all of us are shaped in some way, shape or form by art. Mm -hmm. and for those of us who are Christians, I consider the Bible literature. Yeah. And the Bible itself is a work of art in itself. And it, it, it has a cultural linguistic, which you were mentioning, which we have to like know the background for, the language, the, the culture. But the Bible shapes us and our identities as well. Totally. And, yeah. But for those of... It's our guiding narrative. You know, as Christians, it's kind, of, it's, kind of like, it's kind of a guiding narrative that like, we understand the Bible as kind of this guiding narrative, but it's still understood within a, a linguistic uh, culture, you know, a, a system. So, so even though it's a guiding narrative, that kind of ties us all together, all Christians from all times. It's that, it's that guiding narrative. And from, for, for always, it will always be contextualized to our day, to our culture, you know? Yeah. So for Christians, we, we privilege the Bible as our guiding narrative. But for, for people who are not Christians, what do you think, um, Stephen, what do you think is like the strongest art influencer? Is it movies? Is it a particular type of style? What's guiding American um, spirituality nowadays? Uh, I would say it's probably um, capitalistic commercialism. Um, <laughs> if, if, honest, if, if it was, um, if it, and that's not an art form. I mean, I, I guess in some ways it could be <laughs> too, but, uh, but yeah, the strongest, um, like that's the biggest thing that I think American artists are some way having to deal with. Um, you have some people that are explicitly against it, like Barbara Kruger or, um, or Shepard Ferry, you know, like um, some street artists and some different, like you have a lot of visual artists that kind of like are directly against it. But like, that's part of all of our narratives, um, you know, that we, we're in this world, we're in this consumerist society and um, we're inundated with commercials and all this kind of other stuff. So it's not, we're, we're not in a place where we're, you know, railing against film but we're railing against someone selling us something through every medium possible. And um, that I think is the uh, um, kind of the American, like if America has a God, mm -hmm. I think it's the dollar. It's the consumerist God. That, that kind of idolatry seeps into every aspect of our lives, right? Yeah. And one of the beautiful things though, is that artists, uh, artists rail against that consumerism mm. and that's where we can kind of like be comrades mm -hmm. you know and so like um and when we start engaging art as christians we can be like you know that's totally right we're coming from it from a christian perspective they're coming from it from just a kind of an individualistic like i don't want something guiding me that's like a commercial guiding me you know uh but but there is still is that there is that talking point you know yeah, that reminded me of something I read in David Bentley Hart's book um, about how beauty is non-utilitarian. Mm -hmm. So when we create beauty or we enjoy nature or 
when we just stop for a moment and enjoy the, the bliss of existence, mm. it, it's not profitable. You don't make money off of it. You don't right. get ahead in life of it. But mm. it's the one thing in life that matters. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so when you say the artists rail against the idolatry of capitalism, I, I think you're right. Yeah. As long as we can tap into the beauty of God, mm. then we let go of the kind of worldly pursuits of wealth and yeah. glory, right? And, and we seek after this deeper, deeper glory, God's glory. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. A good chunk of Western civilization history, um, there was a time where Christian art, if you will, um, mm -hmm. uh, had a real major impact in, in, in history. Um, you know, there, the, there's, you, you see music, uh, you see museums everywhere with a huge collection of artists and pastors, uh, interpretation of scripture or, or, um, biblical characters. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm trying to, um, and now I guess maybe I'm bringing up my own opinion here, but it's just like, it seems like, especially in the evangelical circle, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's almost as if, and I was reading your, I read your article, um, regarding, you know, um, the, regarding film and you brought up examples of how, how, um, how film, uh, film creators, you brought three case studies and um, two of them did really well to express biblical ideas. But one that was a Christian movie um, didn't do so well because it's, it seemed more, it wasn't really art or storytelling, but more like a, an apologetic didactic of, of our faith, you know? And, and I think you really, for me, you, you really succinctly explained my gripe right now <laughs> um, towards Christian art that we see today because often for me, it, I, I find it very surface and I find it very more like a caricature of what could be, you know, um, yeah. there's a difference between when I had the opportunity to look up to the, in the Sistine chapel mm -hmm. and how it impacted me as a young man, um, to see that, um, in comparison to what I see now today, that is claimed to be Christian art. Um, how do you feel about? How do you feel about how Christians are, are Christian artists are doing that? Is am I am I just being very? Am I being just a, a sour sour person, or I'm being overly cynical? What? what, what if, if I am, please rebuke me. Please, please <laughs> chastise me at the moment. But I I, I just really feel that. I think we could do better. I'll just. Such a, such a, yeah. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> no, I mean, um, yeah. So, uh, Christian art today, it's 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 actually, so, it's funny how how we think about it. There are some Christians making some pretty amazing stuff today, mm -hmm. and um, there's some networks of Christians that even show the the amazing stuff. But like the stuff that we think about are like the super kitschy you know, movies or songs and just like, oh my gosh, these are like cartoons. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of what gets uh, popular, you know, but, um, but <laughs> which is just kind of funny. Like, so in, in that sense, like of what's popular, no, it's a, uh, it's, it's pretty embarrassing. I'm not gonna lie as a Christian artist, like, good night, you know? So, but um, there's a couple of things that should frame that discussion first um, throughout all the middle ages, and the Renaissance, um, 
you know, the church was the main patron of the arts for the West. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even that, like, why were Christians making such good art? It's because the only artists that got paid <laughs> worked for the church. And so they, like, nobody had, like, if we're talking mid- the Middle Ages, um, you know, for a long time there was illuminated manuscripts until the Carolingian uh, uh, Renaissance um, and, and 800 with the Holy Roman Empire. And it was all, it was all very much, it was art that was in service to the church. So it was, um, it was all utilitarian, actually. It was not, uh, there wasn't, um, you didn't know who the artists were. They just did stuff um, for liturgical reasons and uh, like, you know, iconography or illuminated manuscripts or doing some busts or anything like that. But then in the, in the Renaissance, kind of this shift of um, this kind of rebirth, uh, this shift happened where they looked at kind of this Greco-Roman aesthetics and they incorporated that back into the church. But then also the humanism um, brought, brought in that we recognize human ingenuity. And so they started like recognizing, hey, it's not just an artist that's doing the work. Michelangelo is stinking good. And we should, he's, and he's a genius, so we should hire him. You know, Raphael is stinking good. He's a genius. We should hire him. And so they started like, um, you know, lionizing and recognizing the, uh, the genius that people hold in the arts. And they started hiring them. And so now we start, you know, for the first time in the early, early Renaissance, Giotto and Bocelli and those guys, we start getting, um, you know, name recognition of who did what. And then in the higher Renaissance, they really just took it to another level. But the other thing is these guys were thinking about art as art. Their subject was dictated by the church, but the way that they approached art was just totally, they were looking at form and content. There's little plays, there's even jokes in there. There's even disses against um, you know, different authority figures. There's so much stuff going on. There's so much rebellion in that work <laughs> and so much innovation too. You know, um, like Da Vinci's uh, um, Mona Lisa is the first uh, really, really well-known portrait where the person sitting is actually engaging the audience mm. or they're just kind of looking off. And that's a, that's a huge innovation in portraiture. It's not the first one, but it's the first like kind of major thing that did it. Yeah. Um, same thing with, um, with some of um, Masaccio's work and, and then um, later on Da Vinci and all the, all the Renaissance artists, they're the first ones to use linear perspective. And so, um, you know, the, the, um, these are things that were just majorly innovative. They, they had this kind of fill to do that. So artists today, they're not innovating in that regard um, as far as like finding formal elements to do two-dimensional depictions, um, uh, t- uh, illusions of, of three-dimensional spaces or anything like that. But artists today, contemporary artists, are still innovating. And the problem is a lot of these Christian artists are not. Okay. And so, so these Christian artists are finding a need to show Jesus. Let me just paint Jesus. Mm-hmm. Where artists today do not paint Jesus mm-hmm. for the sake of painting Jesus. Mm. A lot of contemporary artists, Christian and non-Christian artists, will paint portraits of Jesus or put Jesus in things all the time. But he's usually going to be some symbolic for something else. Um, you know, there's this famous piece. Um, a, a, a British uh, sculptor did a piece of, um, oh, man, I can't even, I shouldn't quote this. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, <laughs> There's a, there's a hyper-realistic sculpture of, um, of Jesus in an electric chair. Wow. And, and it said, capital punishment still happens, or something like that. It's, it's something along those lines. So there, you have uh, 
a capital punishment occurring, but we're such a deeply Christian country and our evangelical right wants capital punishment. He's yeah. putting it in the face that our Lord was capitally punished. Yeah. And so, but there Jesus is acting as a symbol. So it's not actually a negative view of Jesus. So a lot of times Jesus is used and it's not, he's, and he's not used in a negative view, but he is used in a very symbolic way nowadays whenever he's used. Kind so, of agenda. Right. There's always a, there's always an agenda. There's always something deeper because people want to contemporary artists do not want to make liturgical art. They want, they don't want to make art for veneration or for devotion. They want to make art that strikes a deeper dialogue that, that anybody can kind of enter. And so if that's the case, you might you might actually be showing pictures of Jesus or, or depictions of him or whatever. Um, but but then you might not. You got to let your concept actually drive the content of what what's being depicted. That's that's how art is in the contemporary age. It's is driven by the concept, and that also breaks you away from painting sometimes. Like you like I'm a painter, but um, but sometimes I'll do video with some animations. I'll do a. Okay. Um, you know, kind of like these installation things. I'll do drawing on arches paper. Um, I've done sculptural stuff. You, you have to let your concept um, dictate where your art's going to go yeah. or else you're going to let something that is uh, something else be, um, you're going to let your concept be subservient to something else. And when you do that, then your art starts becoming cliche or whatnot. Mm. And, so, um, and so the Christian artists that we're talking about, the ones that are kitschy, yeah. art is always subservient to something. You see, so like, so like these movies, didactic, they're subservient to this evangelical sense of like, I want to show the faith in a good light. Okay. Wow. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that might be the thing. Um, in, the, in the book that I was talking about, the, the chapter you said, like, you know, I was, I was pretty endeared by the, the, the effort that they did. Yeah, of course. Of course. You know, like, that was good, but, but it was kitschy. It wasn't, it, that's not how art is approached. Art needs to let that concept go and so when i when i look at a movie like les mis even though that's not you know typically seen as a christian movie or whatever i think there's a deep, deep strong message of grace that sets place in the um in the uh, um uh, uh the french revolution but so this idea of grace being brought out has deeply christian meanings and i will later we'll talk about uh, daredevil that i think there's some cr deeply christian ideas there too but the concept drove the narrative mm, yeah and that's what's important is to let your let your let the art be art mm -hmm. and then let it open up the conversations that that the world needs today yeah. and when you're doing that you're making good art and there's a lot of christian artists that do that now that's great this is so good because again like i always have these moments where i have a lapse of how to explain it well and that's why i'm so glad that you're here with us because you have just explained it well for me like it really a lot of things connected and so i just want to give a little shout uh i want to have a little psa moment here any <laughs> fledgling christian artists out there please listen to the doctor yeah. right now and what he just said let the content be driven by the concept right let let the art let the art be art for art's sake yeah. and and then the message will shine out beautifully you know and like we have and the cool thing is as christians we have so many great examples of that you know in in yeah. the literature world we have lewis we have tolkien you know uh -huh. i don't know a whole lot of artists per se 
But, um, you know, well, I, can tell you, I can tell you a bunch of them, honestly, yeah, like, um, uh, you know, a really, really famous one that I love that's really popular today is Tim Hawkinson. He's a LA based. He had an art 21 done on him. Okay. He's, he's not super overt with his faith, but like some of his pieces, like one of his pieces is called Pentecost, you know? Okay. So like there's areas where he is, he is overt, but like, um, but he's kind of like this mad scientist tinkerer fellow and, uh, and, and, it's, and it's pretty great. And, you know, there's a, a network called SIBA, uh, the Christians Individual Arts. And it's kind of a network of, uh, of Christian arts. You do get a whole lot there. You get, you get some, some guys just, you know, joining the party and other people that are really well established and making some really incredible work. So there is, there's a little bit of everything. But there's some great artists out there. There's a, you know, the, a lot of the, the professors and, um, and teachers that are in kind of Christian institutions, they're usually well connected and they know, like, the, the artists that are making really kind of interesting work that are still deeply committed to the Christian faith. Nice. Um, the second thing I wanted to add when you were saying it about the whole idea of art being the dissonant voice or art being the voice of, of uh, correction um, in a status quo culture. Uh, for example, that, that sculpture of Jesus on the electric chair where it challenges the concept of uh, capital punishment. Um, it reminded me in many ways of prophets. Mm, yeah, right, especially the um, especially the 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 major prophets. Majority of prophetic literature in the Old Testament is written as poetry. You know, uh, an artistic yeah. Yeah. an artistic genre of words. You know, and and so even in, even in our source narrative of scripture, we have an artistic portrayal of 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 the prophet, you know, and of, of, and as we see in the new Testament, one of the fivefold ministries, uh, according to Ephesians and, um, that all being said, it's, uh, what am I going with this? You get, uh, that all being said, it's, it's something that we definitely need to continue to talk about, especially as evangelicals who, yeah. who, who as a collective community do take scripture seriously, that within scripture itself, there's art, and um, and that art is was a way to challenge the cha to challenge um, things that are not of God, you know. Yeah. And so that's I actually that's um, I actually made the argument um, in some lectures, and I talked about it a little bit in my first book, um, Pentecostal Aesthetics, but uh, um, that uh, the prophets are really really akin to performance artists today, yeah. like like starting seventies and eighties. Yeah. So like performance artists do crazy stuff to get the attention of people to kind of like shift them out of their, um, out of their kind of like the reality and then, um, and then to really pay attention to an image. And so you got Hosea marrying a prostitute to make a point. You have Isaiah walking around Jerusalem naked for three years just to make a point. You know, like you, you have like all these things, like, like um, all these things happening that are like, oh, snap, these guys are actually doing. <laughs> That's so true. The, you know they're doing performances. That's a good um, point. That's a very. Yeah, good it makes point. me think twice about wanting to become an artist. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But it goes back to to my point, which is that art is still an incarnation of truth because the prophets mm -hmm. will point out the truth of what's happening in the moment, and a lot yeah. of times it's a challenge to the status quo. Yeah. Um. So I guess I kind of despair, though, right? Like, <clears throat> it seems like Hollywood. And in and, and secular kind of sources of, of, of artists, it seems like they're just so far ahead of anything that any Christians could do. Like, a, it, it's too late for me as a Christian to become a filmmaker, right? Like, That's not true. 
<laughs> Scott yeah. Derrickson. Scott Derrickson graduated okay. from Biola. He did. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, Exorcism of Emily Rose. Um, wow. Uh, and uh, and Doctor Strange. You know. What? Um, yeah. Wow. Scott Derrickson. Um, Terrence Malick has deeply Christian uh, stuff, and he's just so stinking good. I mean, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, I think in some ways it's, it's definitely not the case that um, like there's Christians making some good stuff everywhere. And even if you take music for example, there's um, some genres that um, that Christians were the leaders of. Like I think of like I grew up, I, I was a little bit of a metalhead. I was in a Christian metal band for like co- throughout college. Nice. And think about it, like all the metal bands that were back there, the metalcore bands, most of them were Christian bands. Under Oath, Azalea Dying, Devil Wars Prada, Memphis Mayfire. They're either Christian or Christian affiliated. They like came out of youth groups and stuff and um, started making music. And, and they basically just like paved the way for an entire popular genre of music. Um, so they were highly influential there. Blindsides, super influential to all those all those folks and you still got people like uh like switchfoot um skillet that are making some really good good stuff and good waves out there and there's i mean they're they are all over the place but it's just you know then we'll start hearing you know the super didactic let me tell you how to live your life songs um you know and, and those kind of like you know, kind of defeat the purpose. But um, it's actually very encouraging to know that artists are still Christian artists are still innovating. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. The, uh, the kind of place that I'm sitting at now is like, well, if I can't create art as a as, as a Christian myself, at least I can commentate, or at least I can analyze yeah. other other works of art. Mm-hmm. And and I've been doing it through Marvel because Marvel is just. I feel like for. Basically, a generation of people yeah. has shaped their desires, yeah. their values, the way they see the world, <clears throat> how they approach problems and conflict, um, how they resort to violence or they resort to peacemaking. Mm-hmm. Marvel has a, uh, it, a Disney at large is, is capturing the imaginations of kids, teenagers, oh. and thirty-year-old men like me and Simon. <laughs> yeah. And me, I'm there. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, what if we just transition for a few minutes over to, to Daredevil now? Um, because sure. in Daredevil, I find uh, very um, a lot of parallels between the Christian struggle and Daredevil, uh, the Netflix Mar- Marvel version, right? Totally, yeah. At least in season three, I see a big, deep struggle in, um, in Daredevil about whether he should keep fighting or not. Mm-hmm. Um, season one, he was very hopeful in, in trying to fight for what's right. Season two, it was hard. Season three, he just wants to give up. In fact, he just, he, he knows that e- evil is real. He knows that people are really struggling. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't think that there's really a God anymore. Because the fight just doesn't work. Um, and the big question is, should I keep fighting for justice? Uh, what are your perspectives? Simon and, and Stephen about how Daredevil is approaching the struggle. The way I was taking it is, you know, I, I never bought into, like watching season three, yeah. I never bought into his atheism. Mm-hmm. I never thought he was an atheist. Mm-hmm. I never thought he, I thought he was angry at God the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought the whole thing was a big challenge to God. I think what, what it was is that he had, 
a big problem seeing justice. Um, and, and I think that's justice on, on every account. He didn't see justice work in the system at all. He saw the guy that he put away that he basically almost gave his life in order to put away mm-hmm. totally finagle the system and come out on top and basically abuse everybody and manipulate yeah. and then, um, and just completely not work. Like everything that he worked for was for nothing. And I think he saw, he became nihilistic because he saw all of his efforts as, as just vanishing that, that they were, they were nothing. And so I th- think his sense of justice was wrapped up in his understanding of God. And, and I think what catalyzed him being against uh, God was really his, his, his justice breaking down. Yeah. Once justice broke down completely, um, he questioned the source of that justice, yeah. which is God. And I saw him beating up criminals, but it was no longer to defend the weak. He was beating, beating up criminals because it felt good, like right. a vent or an outlet for his rage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that, I want to piggyback on that because what I noticed is um, if, we, if we had a big picture of, of Matt Murdock's journey, it's almost as if the, um, it's almost as if like he began in his concept of justice, he began as an idealist, very right? Much, yeah. It was a, it's like, it's a very clear cut, very black and white. This is how we, this is what it means. This is what it looks like to do the right thing. This is what it looks like to do the wrong thing. And that the quote unquote cultural foundation of law, order and governance was at the side of good. Right. Yeah. And then he, and then it's his journey and his journey then leads him to become a nihilist, where it basically was like, okay, um, I see that this, this system is flawed and it's dark and that evil people actually use it for their advantage. And right. so what is the effing point, yeah. you know? And, and then yeah, what, exactly. you know, the dangerous thing about him being a nihilist is that, um, like you guys said, he's doing it for himself only. He becomes ego-centered, and he does it out of just getting a thrill yeah. from it, you know? And then later on, I think is um, – uh, later on, I think, is he becomes from – but the danger of it is that if you become a nihilist, you become totally consumed by it. You'll be destroyed by it. You'll be engulfed by the flames of it. Mm-hmm. And, but he, he breaks out of that through the impact and influence and sacrifice of people that he loved. But he breaks out of that, and I think he becomes a realist. He becomes a realist, where the and it's almost as if it's his mode of repentance, where it's just like, I saw the, I saw the naivete of being an idealist. I saw the destruction of being a nihilist. I don't want either, and I want to realize there is still good, and I have to fight for that good. I realize that I can't do it all... I can't define that. I can't define that the way that I want to. I need help finding that. I need to work together with folks, and and then um, and then he becomes. And I think this. I think that's one big observation that I see with yeah. uh, this character's journey. This is how he's seeing uh, like uh, governmental justice. So yeah. first one, as the idealist, he was like his idea. I think is justice works, but. <laughs> it doesn't finish the job and that's where Derek comes in. Right, right, right. Then with nihilism, it was justice does not work. And so it's, it's so why does he uh, hurt people and and do that stuff? 
because it's who he is. Mm. That's literally it. He, there's no other way that like he just ha- needs to um, live out the life that he was condemned to basically, which is, it's kind of like a nihilistic approach. I mean, that's like Sartre basically, mm. you know what I'm saying? Like, like you're condemned to just be who you are. And then, um, and then, like you said, when he becomes a realist, he saw the system work again with Nadim's sacrifice. Yeah. Right. Um, Right. Saw that the system actually worked. It was able to put Fisk back in into jail. But like you said, now it's a realist approach. It's not just finishing the job, but it's actually that like, yeah, the system is flawed. It does work. It might need a whole lot of assist from the daredevil. But <laughs> um, but the point is that that like justice is still actually there. Like he he got brought back to it, and he also came back to the realization that that he can't do stuff by himself. That you know what I'm saying that's going to be a team effort too. Yeah. And if I could add, if I could add to that too, like, so like you said, as with Nadine's sacrifice, it was a restoration of his view on how uh, governmental justice works. I think with, um, I forgot his name, but the father, uh, the, the Catholic priest, his sacrifice in a way brought restoration to his, his faith in God. You know absolutely. Yep, exactly. That's a, that's, a, that's a great parallel, actually. I think that's, that's absolutely intended to it. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Because both... Both of, them, both of them righted their own wrong. So right. um, the father, uh, you know, uh, that was a repent. That was asking forgiveness to Matt for um, messing up his childhood, basically, and, right. and keeping secrets from him. And then um, Nadim's was the um, for messing up the the situation politically. And right. so he saw justice on both accounts. On the um, uh, that he would give his life for the woman he loves because he messed up his work world and that's they were they were both justice so i think that, that's exactly it those are those are the catalysts that restored his faith in both yeah definitely yeah when um the father died <coughs> spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen <laughs> yeah right, right right but i saw that in that act a very christological act yes uh, <clears throat> he got in the way of bullseye's like some kind of object that he was throwing at trying to kill karen and he's then the father of the priest steps in the way. He's he sacrifices his own life to save another person's life. And it's, yeah. it's crazy how much impact you can do when you don't care about your life. Mm. You know? Like this father had no no fear of death, no um fear of like going to hell or anything. And so he was able to give up his life freely and gratefully to save someone else. And as he does it, he whispers, please forgive us. <clears throat> and to me, I take that to be pretty ambiguous. Like, oh, yeah. You, you assume, please forgive us. Maybe he's saying it to Matt Murdock, or he's saying it to God. Hmm. We don't know, hmm. right? I don't think the show will, will really tell us. Right. But it, it tells me that it, in that sacrificial act, that is supposed to inspire all of us as audiences to try to see how we can give up our lives for another person. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's good. That's heroic. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe by that heroic act in the father that inspired Daredevil to pick up his... Wow. Yeah. And I think, I mean, yeah, if, um, if we can... If we can <clears throat> I think that's one of the essence of why hu- humanity and the cultural history, the, the anthropological history, there, there's something about that term and what the people that we place that term hero upon that is so unique and so universal across culture um, that it's the idea that there's these individuals that we look up to because 
they inspire us to be better or they inspire us to be people um, that are beyond ourselves that that it transforms us if you will and so it's 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 that's exactly right and uh, you know, uh, another example in the Marvel world first Avengers when Phil Coulson oh, sacrifices yeah. himself and it compels yeah. all the heroes to join forces and come together there's something powerful about that there's something powerful of the heroic sacrifice so yeah um, that's 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 awesome thank you we're gonna see you with Steve Rogers or somebody <laughs> right exactly I know I know I mean don't get me started on that golly anxious about that come on yeah, right? <laughs> yeah I I mean just what is gonna happen I don't know what is gonna happen Steve, I don't want to Steve. I, I, I think about that I don't want to think about that story. I know he's my favorite Captain yeah. America's my favorite but I think he's gonna go I think it's, I think it's his time <laughs> but I, I wanted to bring up also um, a thought that I had with the amount of episodes that I watched was um, the contrast and the parallels between Bullseye and Daredevil. Um, in many ways, they they came from the same they came from the same stock. You know, they they lost their parents tragically. Um, they they were orphans. They were adults that were trying to do their best to um, to make them who they are. One becomes a homicidal psychopath, and the other becomes um, the other becomes this force, or th tries to be this force to take care of people. You know, what's the difference? What was the major difference? And um, and for me, I really think that. So, like, let let me just specifically focus on Bullseye when um, when the Kingpin was trying to analyze Bullseye from you know from his background. It, there was one pointed thing that I noticed was that um, Bullseye had all the how. Like, he was this horrible person. He knew he was this horrible, horrible person. How do I deal with this? And um, the people that he trusted taught him, this is how you should do it. You know, that, that psychiatrist uh, yeah. lady is like, I'm going to give you the method, and I'm going to give you the processes, and I'm going to give you the steps on how to break that and how to, how to walk that out. You know, and so, so Bullseye had all the how, yeah. you know, how to become whoever he needed to become a better person. But we realize, and what I saw in the, in the show is that hows break easily, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like Bullseye bent the rules. We saw that in the scene where he was uh, um, in, the, uh, in the suicide helpline, you know, he was caught talking to that person, talking about the yeah. gun and this and that. And just like, he bent the rules. He had control over the how, right? And um and and uh, uh, in the in regards to the character development of it is like you see Bullseye in a very sterile environment. His apartment is clean, apartment is tidy, and all that. And that's kind of the same way as the Kingpin. Very sterile, very blank. Um, there was nothingness about Bullseye, you know. In contrast to Matt Murdock, where he's in the basement of the church. And every time he talks to uh, Sister Maggie, um, it's always between, it's always the middle is the cross and then the two sides are the stained glass windows of biblical figures. You know what I'm saying? There's no blankness. There's no sterileness. There's, it's, 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 it's complex. Murdoch has the why. You know, Mur and, and we see in the first episode, he, he talks about the story of Job and he, ha and he, and he, and he disagrees with Job, but that's still the why, you know what I'm saying? It's like why I do this and whys are 
far more stable than the how. You know, and I maybe I'm being confusing here, but basically what I'm trying to say is that as Christians, we have a source narrative. We have a source narrative, and that's the why, and that governs our lives. If we're so focused and caught up on how to do things, we break easily. You know what I'm saying? It's just like in regards to maybe a a habitual sin. How do I get out of this habitual sin? I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this. You know what I'm saying? Sooner than later, if our focus is just on the how, it's going to destroy and break. You know what I'm saying? We're going to revert back to that habitual sin. If we figure out the why, like Matt Murdock, that helps us become, that I think will free us. And that will make us become the person that God wants us to be, you know? And I think that's why Christianity um, um, as a religion is so important because we have a foundation of stories that tell us why, you know, instead of just simply the how. Yeah, I want to push back a little bit on um, the parallels. Okay, um, nice. um, But uh, no, what you're saying about how and why, basically having this kind of like rule, rules-based Ooh, yeah. There you go. Uh, it, it's kind of like this how thing, and um, and that's that's not relational, like the why. And yes. so I think you're totally right about that. But I don't really see um, Bullseye and Daredevil as like really strong parallels, um, okay. because Bullseye is a psychopath yeah. from like birth. Um, so that's the that's the thing that they're kind of showing, like, um, and and also um, Kingpin. They're all psychopaths. Yeah. Whereas right. like, um, and and so uh, Matt Murdock isn't trying to repress a psychopathic sense oh, that, okay. you know ever like he, he's he's got like he, he he his repression is always like he's been through a lot of crap so he has to try to like you know let darkness not take over mm-hmm. but it's not because he doesn't see the difference between hurting someone or, or not like a psychopath would um so so I, I don't see them as like true parallels um even the the comic characters i don't know if they're uh if there would be like a true parallel, like, uh, but even, even sometimes when they are like Hush and Batman being right. kind of true parallels, they're Hush is also a psychopath. So, yeah. so like, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, their, their journeys are a little different. Like Matt never had to deal with <clears throat> how to not let the beast out, how to not be, you know, Dexter yeah. or whatever. I guess maybe I, I, I totally see, I totally see that, but I feel that what, I mean, I feel that any moment in, in Murdoch's life, he could have been bullseye. He could have been, it could have been psycho, psychopathic. He could have been psychopathic. What stopped it? What stopped it? And I really think it was the introduction of sacred narrative in his life. You know what I'm saying? Like when, when, he, when he lost his father, when he lost, uh, when he lost his father, who, who, who quickly came to um, take care of him? It was the church through, through, uh, through, through the father, um, through the um, Catholic priest. In, in regards to Bullseye's situation, he had none of that. And I, I don't know if that was intentional by the creator or by the director, but this was very, this was very obvious for me, I guess. It was just like, whoa, this, or it was very distinct, you know, and I was like, it, it, it caused me to like, wow, this, I wonder how intentional was this? Was it just due to the storytelling you wanted to do that? Or was the director wanting to show something? And it seems to me that that the necessity of sacred narrative in one's life really impacts that person 
not being a psychopath. Let's just, you know, you, you don't become a bullseye, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, um, and, and, I, and I say all this because I feel that, you know, in our society becoming more and more secular, people who are religious get a bum rap. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, oh, you're backwards. You're, 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 you know, you're, you're anti this. You're always this and that. But I think, I think this show really gets into the root of it, though. Is like, but these sacred narratives are still important. They're a major part of our society. They're a major part of people's lives. And there's a lot of good people, who a lot of loving people who use these sacred narratives as a, as a compass for their life. You know, there's gotta be something important about it. And I, and for me, I feel that season three really pointed that out. It's just like the necessity almost, I, I dare say of having sacred narrative in your life. It, it gives you caution. It yeah. makes you going back to this, but going back to season three, using season three, it makes you not bullseye, you know, that's, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, I found myself comparing Daredevil with Batman. Right. Because Batman has the one rule. Right. Well, you know, Daredevil's Marvel's Batman, right? But oh, Batman. yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but Batman doesn't kill because his parents were killed. Right, right, right. But for Daredevil, he doesn't kill because God doesn't want right. people to kill. Yeah. So he right. has a different motivation. Right. Um, being, you know, all of us being involved in church ministry and being some kind of pastoral leadership here and there, what would you like to say to our audience and perhaps those in our audience that are becoming, that would desire to become artists and that desire to become ministers, um, faithful ministers of Christian faith, what would you like to say to them? Yeah, so um, I think we need to be people that are very adept to what's going on mm. in, in the person's holistic lives. And I think the, the important thing is to, to make a distinction and a differentiation mm. that art for the church has a place and is very important. Mm -hmm. Like having worship music, having even having your church uh, commission installations or host a gallery opening or, or do prophetic painting during a sermon or whatever, it's all very important. Having a liturgical dance, um, you know, like, a, like having the arts involved in the context of worship is important and great. That art though is always functional. It's serving a greater purpose the greater purpose is to worship God. Yeah. Does that diminish what that is? No, that's just what it is. It is art that is in service of God, which is great. Now, if you're working outside the world to, or outside of the church to make a, a, to create a, or to enter into a broader dialogue, then we should not be viewing art the same way. It should not be in service of the liturgical context. Um, and this art, needs to be driven by, I think, a concept. And if you, if you let a concept drive what you make and how you make it um, in order to, to just join a conversation, then that's pretty great. I think uh, artists, Christian artists working outside, we don't have to give answers. A lot of times art does not give answers. Yeah. Art needs more questions. <laughs> it is ambiguous. It poses questions. It, it, um, and, and so that's the, the main thing is like, you know, when we see these movies that, that are so stinking didactic, um, the thing is they're trying to answer everything. They're trying to tell in, in 120 minutes, they're trying to tell you how the whole universe works. And, <laughs> and that's not what art ever does. Art evokes the questions. It evokes answers or at least an exploration of the answer, but it doesn't give you this straightforward thing. So I would say enter the dialogue and let the concept drive your work 
and realize that there are a lot of talking points that we can make. You know, with, let's start thinking about art that shows creativity or art shows that uh, like uh, creation flourishing or justice in art, you know, a conf confrontation of powers of evil and stuff like that, of, of reconnecting people and communities, of uh, understanding our identity, of, um, you know, art that seeks peace or reconciliation or elicits hope or establishes justice, all these things, all sorts of art all over the world does that. And so those are all things that the Holy Spirit does. And those are all talking points. And so those are the conversations that we need to enter and we need to just be faithful to ourselves and to, and to everyone. And don't, don't just start painting the dove. You know what I'm saying? Don't just start painting a crucifix. Don't start just, don't just start doing stuff like that. Think about, think about what reconciliation means on broad terms and then let that guide you because the little weird esoteric image that you get from that is going to speak very deeply to somebody. Mm -hmm. But if you show them, this is Jesus on the cross, you need to respect this. Mm -hmm. Those who are Christians will, those who are not won't right. because you're telling them to do something. You're being didactic. And so it's not, um, it's not helpful. And so, uh, so yeah, just, uh, just remember that art should be this kind of communal, a relational thing, a, a dialogue between people. So if it's in the church, let it be just that. Let it be church work to bring us to glory to God. If it's outside of the church, let it enter into a deeper dialogue. That's great. I think that is one of probably our best concluding yeah. of an episode that we've ever had. Yeah. But um, thank you so much thank for uh, just uh, – letting us just pick your brain but that ends episode six and um we'll just we'd love to get your thoughts on it anyone who's listening just comment on our facebook social media stuff twitter we have an instagram right i think or um, yeah. anyways but um with just yeah but uh stay tuned for episode seven but this is simon and joey and dr stephen felix yeager signing out and god bless everyone Hello, Kingsman listeners. Joey Allen Lee here. After having a fascinating and insightful conversation with Dr. Stephen Felix Yeager on Christianity and the arts, Simon and I couldn't help but unpack and reflect on what we had learned. So we wanted to share this bonus segment with you all. Enjoy, everyone. The way that we will reach people is our own personal story and our yeah. own encounter with God. Yeah. That's one of my major arguments about... Um, uh, of seeing Jesus as hero, mm. where rather than savior, I'm not denying that Jesus savior. Jesus is savior, absolutely. But um, to use uh, language, um, another tool set, or another vernacular of Jesus as hero, what it does is that I'm calling Jesus the person that I wish to emulate. He yeah. is my standard. Yeah. He is he is the person that I wish to live my life as. You know, and that's what that's what that's why we call people our heroes, yeah. right? You know, it's just like, you know, um and that being said, and what you said about our culture and his thesis in his book tells me more is like, okay, like I know God's like kicking me and it's like, come on, you know, yeah. so it's like start doing it right now. But it's like more and more I'm getting further and further convinced that maybe this is this is the path. This is the way that maybe this is my two cents to the table of, yeah. of reaching the world with, with Christ's message, you know, and yeah. just like to see Jesus as a heroic figure. And, but yeah. So, yeah, we do, we do have to do it. Um, 
I, I shared you a link um, to this YouTube playlist. Yeah, I got the email. The yeah. archetype. Right, right, right. Warrior, king, lover, and magician. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it kind of, sounds kind of new agey to me. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. It's definitely not Christian, right? Okay, okay. But I do like a few thoughts that he was trying to say about okay. how, <clears throat> especially the warrior. Hmm. The all of us have a warrior in us. Right. You know? Right. And warrior, the warrior expresses himself or herself through power. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of times people fight, fight for life simply for survival because mm-hmm. they believe it's your fundamental basic right to right. be alive. Right. So they're fighting just to survive. Yeah. There's a, there's the peak, like you might, if you can imagine a pyramid yeah. a triangle, right? Yeah. At the peak of it is a warrior who is secure and, protects the weak okay makes sense this is how i interpret jesus as the as the epitome the hero oh okay because jesus as i'm not saying that being a warrior is bad right but the the best kind of warrior protects the weak right exactly and exactly and the best type of hero will save right you know right but there's the shadow side of being a hero uh being a warrior yeah where you hurt other people but you use force and power to dominate over right 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 that's the active side of yeah. the shadow side. Yeah. There's the passive side where you don't fight at all. Mm-hmm. And you're weak and you mm-hmm. run away and you're mm-hmm. frightened. Mm-hmm. And and so there's this active and passive side of... of and then the power. shadow dynamic. In, yeah. In, 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 in. So when I look at Jesus, I see someone who is secure in himself. Right. Um, who doesn't have to like hurt other people to, to feel better about himself. Yeah. But in fact, he jumps into the fray... To defend the weak and the poor. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, that's great. Um, it, in many ways, it's like uh, I, and I think that's why for me, like I always loved the analogy that jujitsu provides. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where the idea is that this wrestling match or this uh, this this struggle between two opponents, you know, especially in in the jujitsu community today, it's we're not using it combatively. You know what I'm saying, but we're using these these techniques to um, um, to really find out who we are and to learn to have more self security. You know, to yeah. be so secure of oneself, where it's just like I don't need to fight anyone really. I don't need to hurt anyone. Yeah. But it, but in many ways, I feel that this this dynamic, uh, this jujitsu dynamic, is found in Christ, where the idea is that he he is a warrior. He's not yeah. passive, and he's um. I I dare would say uh um maybe not even pacifistic per se but he is nonviolent yeah. um but he he and he counters violent violence nonviolently you know and yeah. in in many ways I think that's kind of the a a a a philosophy of jujitsu right and so it's just like um but um yeah I mean he doesn't run from the fight he doesn't run from the fight but it isn't. But he doesn't hurt people he, and to he, get his exactly. way. Exactly, that's yeah. right. And so, so there's no um, what's the term that people use when, like, in a war, innocent people die. Um, I forgot, but they're not. He he doesn't. He he fight damage. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, a lot of times, our heroes are so. Um, they they don't see the big picture. They they don't have a, a view of the big picture enough that so that. So then their actions create collateral damage, you know, but Jesus what becomes, he's the superlative hero yeah. where 
there's no collateral damage. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's that's really cool. That's powerful. <clears throat> this is, this brings up something pretty fascinating because I was watching a, a Bible project video. Yeah, about, they're great about um, sacrifice and atonement. Mm-hmm. And something they pointed out was that evil is when, within all of us. Mm. So if God were tr- to try to rid evil of rid the world of evil, that would entail he he would have to exactly. rid all of humanity. Exactly, exactly. But he finds a way to remove evil mm-hmm. without killing humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Right? Exactly, it's uh, some kind of amazing chess move that yeah. God could do. Right. So he and Jesus by by basically he's not perpetuating the cycle of violence. Well, yeah. He yeah. for us we think the way to solve problems is to kill people. Right. Right. Let's kill the terrorists. Let's right. kill the enemy. Right. Whoever the bad guy is, right. we kill them. Then right. evil stops. Right. But that's not always true. Yeah. In fact, no. it, it's rarely true. <laughs> you know. I mean, it is true in some senses. Like, yeah. like if, if we're thinking about World War One. Good two, point. You yep. know, like good point. Sometimes the evil is so bad yeah. that n- nothing except for the cessation of that person's life right. will solve it. Right. But but there's a there's a shadow side to that too. Where exactly. When I think that my that the solution is to kill somebody, and I turn to that solution every time something bad goes wrong, right? There will be no more of us left. Exactly. No more humanity. Exactly. Us. Exactly. We, we may exist, but we may not be alive. Right. You know what I'm saying? No, that's great because um, that sent, that totalitarian viewpoint often gets us stuck and often leads us to a destructive path. You know, it's like this is the only way. Yeah. This justice exercised in this way is the only way. Yeah. But Christ comes into the picture and says, no, there's an alternative. And and don't be fooled. Don't be fooled that this alternative looks weak yeah. or meek or, or no, this is this is the most powerful approach, yeah. you know, and 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 um, and all you got to do is just trust it. And tr- yeah. and maybe to the certain extent you're, with your life, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And I think. You know, as I sit back and think about it, you know, being Christians in America, I doubt that we'll ever experience it. But, you know, but I think back and I just wonder, like, wow, am I do I trust this other alternative way so much so Mm. that my life has I mean, I'll forfeit my life for it, you know, and just like and and I think that's also part of human history as well. The reason why we continue to progress at this state as human beings um, is not just simply by power, but it's simply, it's also possibly, I think very possibly um, individuals who gave up Mm. their life and say, you know what? I think my life was, my life sacrifice is worth far more because, you know, and so. Yeah. I think for the violence and the the oppression to end, somebody has to absorb the pain yeah right right. you know like if you hurt me i hurt you right then that's what's fair and that's what's just right but then if you hurt me and i hurt you then i'll hurt you back yeah you'll hurt me back exactly it just keeps going it's a constant cycle right yeah so the only way for that cycle to end is for someone to receive the hurt and stop yeah there yeah yeah and that takes a supreme amount of will right willpower You, you have to be supremely secure in yourself absolutely to be to be offended, insulted, um, hurt, per- persecuted, right, even killed, right, and not hold that offense against someone, right. 
Right. And and Jesus models that for us. Absolutely. Right? He shows us what it's like and how to receive uh, pain and and insult yeah. and injury. Yeah. Without retaliating back. Exactly. And that's that for me is what what makes a person a, a heroic person. Hmm. Not the exertion of power. Right. But the exercise of vulnerability. God is the most vulnerable exactly. because he opens himself up to a world of pain. Right, right. And, the and only... he, didn't, he, he, he didn't have to. He didn't. He's entitled not yeah. to experience that, right? Yeah. Yeah, he has every moral right not to experience right. that, but he gave that up, right? Yeah. But, and, that, and this is the secret to, to eternal life, I yeah. think. Yeah. The secret is not protecting yourself. Yeah. But being self-giving yeah. and self-surrendering yeah, and right. giving it up to the other, capital yeah. O, other. Yeah. That's the way that the Trinity operates. Yeah, and if you want to, you want to have eternal life. Like that's you gotta live like the eternal, like the Trinity does. Wow, that's wow, that's a powerful statement, Joey. That is a powerful statement, because like you saying that, I'm just going through five thousand miles per hour just scripture, <laughs> like from the very beginning of Genesis. What could what could have the what could the first couple have done? For Adam and Eve, what could have they? What could they have done? You know, when when God was walking and was just like, "Where are you guys?" Instead of protecting themselves and covering themselves, you know, what could have they have done? Now, granted, they didn't know any better. We have the we have the benefit of of foreknowledge, or we we've seen the story, we yeah. read the story. So so I'm not I'm not I'm not putting them to task, but like, could let's just speculate. Could you just imagine? If they made the right decision, and I and I imagine it this way that they go to God naked and said, "God, we 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 ate the apple, and I'm and mm-hmm. and I want to expose that to you. Yeah. I want to reveal that to you instead of covering up. I wonder what God would have done, mm. knowing mm. the story. I think God would have been like, "This is why. Yeah, this is why you guys are such unique creation. You know, and yeah. just like I don't know, I don't know. I mean, we can just speculate, but like just you saying that." You saying that, that is what I think means what, what it means to be absolutely human. Um, it, what, it, what it means to be p- part of creation, you know what I'm saying? And so, so that was deep, yeah. man. It's kind of trying, I said the word vulnerable earlier, and I think it goes to this idea of like how we don't want to admit fault. No, and so if Adam and Eve, the first couple, admitted fault, right, then all that they would do, like I think this is God, what God wants us to do, yeah, is to acknowledge the reality of who we are. Yeah, right, right. If right. we if we messed up, yeah. just admit that you messed up, right? Because right. you know, like it's not like God will hate us more or exactly. love us less, yeah, 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 because we messed up. Right. No, all you're doing is admitting to what you are, right? right? right. And that's the problem. Yeah. Is that nobody wants to admit exactly. their weaknesses, exactly. admit their faults and right. their failures, right. and nobody wants to admit that they need help. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, it, the, a gr- the greatest act of security is to admit that you're insecure, you know? And it's just like, and again, going back to the scriptures, what it reminded me was um, the prayer of Gethsemane. You know what I'm saying? Like, like Jesus, if I was in Jesus' shoes, I would never have prayed the prayer in Gethsemane. You know what I'm saying? Because I thought me being the son of God means that I don't have these thoughts, you know? But what or, does, you know? Doubts or fears, Exactly, anxiety. exactly. But our Christ, our Messiah, the son of God, at that moment said, you know, 
let this cup pass from me. You know, yeah. I, I don't want to do this. With tears and blood. Exactly, and... man. Yeah. Exactly. It's just like, I don't want to do this. He revealed something about himself that if we if we portrayed Christ the way that we portray Christ would be shameful. It's, it's yeah. absolutely embarrassing. Yeah. How dare you say that, you know? But Jesus says, no, I'm, like you yeah. said, using your words, I'm secure with who I am. Yeah. And in that security allows doubt. Yeah. In that security allows fear. And that security allows me to confess these things, yeah. to share these things. But then at the end, he says, yet, not my will, but yours be done. It almost, it, it almost gives him, because he exposes himself that way, because he was vulnerable at that moment, it almost, um, it almost um, empowers him to say the second phrase, you know? And, and then connecting that with the fact that all his disciples were asleep when he said that mm-hmm. he wanted him to hear these words he yeah. wanted he wanted his disciples to hear these words why so that we get that you know and so um